Crypto Watch is presented by theconstantinvestor.com. I'm Alan Kohler, and every day my writing and podcasts put the financial world into context with a focus on the issues that matter. Join us today. It's only a dollar for the first month. And now it's time for this week's Crypto Watch. Today, I'm talking to Rupert Hackett, who's the CEO of bitcoin.com.au. Uh, g'day, Rupert, and uh, well done getting that URL. <laughs> Thanks, Alan. How are you going? Very good. So, um, uh, obviously, the price of Bitcoin's been quite volatile in the last month or so. Um, it seems to have been related to the the possible fork that's coming up um, and uh, the cancellation of it and uh, all that stuff. I mean, as we speak, the price is now at another record high of above 8,000, I think, US. Um, so, look, yep. can you explain to us, uh, firstly, what is a fork and... Um, what was going to happen and why was it cancelled? Um, yeah, so so I guess the, the primary fork that you're talking about is uh, SegWit2x. And so um, what this was, this is a, a hard fork. And a hard fork says that basically all users of the technology need to decide which version they're going to support. Uh, so it's non-backwards compatible, whereas a soft fork is backwards compatible. So, so I guess the SegWit story kind of starts a bit earlier, maybe three months ago um, or as early as May. So what happened was a long time ago, there's, there's been a long issue going on of how to scale Bitcoin. Um, previous to this year, it was capped at about three to five transactions a second. Uh, in order to change that, you would have had to have created a, a hard fork, um, which is very contentious in this this can lead to a lot of um, drama and uncertainty within the the protocol or, or, or Bitcoin. Why do you have to? Um, so what, what's someone, why do you have to create a hard fork to change the number of transactions? So, so what happened when um, when Bitcoin was first created? It was written into the protocol that one block on the blockchain could only be one megabyte. Um, and so, you know, when this was created in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, that was a reasonable amount. But now that we're Grown. Um, the, the challenge was is that that number was hard coded, and so in in order for everyone to shift, you would have had to have gotten over fifty one percent of people to to migrate to this new version. Uh, so again, the, a hard fork is non backwards compatible. Everyone is forced to upgrade to use the new version, whereas a soft fork is backwards compatible. So so what happened was it was thought for a long time that you would have to hard fork Bitcoin in order to increase the number of transactions it could do per second. Uh, but what, what someone actually found out was uh, a thing called SegWit, which stands for segregated witness, which was this very interesting idea where you could segregate the witness data from a block and therefore double the amount of uh, size you had for transaction data, effectively doubling it from one megabyte to two megabyte in, uh, in real terms. So what happened was... Um, this, this was a kind of ongoing um, thing which a lot of people wanted to get activated. But the original SegWit proposal, because, because you have to kind of play in this, um, this consensus-driven mechanism, you have parties that actually go way above and beyond the 51% requirement. So the original SegWit proposal required 95% of participants to upgrade within a two-week period for this to become active. Um, and that, was, that number was just simply too high. So... So they, they, they tried, but they couldn't really get that critical mass. Um, you know, there's people that are running old nodes of Bitcoin that are no longer, you know, in the community or active in the community. So, so then what happened was um, in May 
there's a thing called the New York Agreement. Um, this happened at Consensus in New York by, um, I think it was shared by the digital currency group, Barry Silbert. And so they said, well, well what we'll do is we'll um, create a new version called Segwit2x. And so Segwit2x will um, lower the consensus threshold down from 95% to 85%. Uh, that, that being the Segwit component, and the 2x component was after three to four months, we will fork Bitcoin and double the block size as well. So the net result would be a, a four times the current transaction throughput. Um, what this kind of created was a, a big kind of rallying um, that had the kind of the top 20 or 30 Bitcoin companies all signed the New York agreements. And this was during a period where Bitcoin was losing market share to Ethereum. Everyone was kind of saying, well, you know, you can't update Bitcoin, it's stagnating. Um, so, so this really kind of economically incentivized, I think, the, the organizations to unify and rally uh, towards some kind of, you know, equilibrium, um, so to speak. And did that result, that upcoming Bitcoin and that decision in New, the New York agreement, did that result in the big rise in the price of Bitcoin uh, up to, I think, about $7,500? Um, yes and no. I mean, it was definitely the next rally. So, so that was when we saw the high of three thousand US, then we dropped down to you know the low two thousands at the end of May, and um, after that was was when we kind of had a, a bit of a you know bullish but not not incredible um, you know for two months, and then um, then we started to see the rise. So I think there was definitely a, a correlation, uh, particularly with that information kind of spreading out to the broader ecosystem. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, the, the, the next real crescendo was um, Segwit getting activated, which, which we're still kind of waiting for the implications of that, which is very interesting. Um, you know, payment channels and lightning network, which is, uh, could potentially scale Bitcoin to, you know, millions of transactions a second off chain. Um, which is, you know, yet to be determined if that will actually happen, but there's a lot of researchers working on it. Um, so that's what happened was the, the segment went through and then we had the 2X component, which is a, a forced hard fork. Um, and this was very contentious because this, this requires everyone to update or you run the risk if, um, if half the network goes to one and the other half goes to the other, then you're running two different versions of Bitcoin. So... What is very interesting is what you're seeing is whenever a hard fork happens, who actually kind of controls the um, definition of what is the, the true Bitcoin, so to speak, if you're making two versions of it, is actually the, the exchanges that define the trading symbol. So which one is going to be called BTC? And so in the Segwit2x case, that was going to be called B2x. That kind of immediately loses a lot of its validity as the um, the original tried and trusted trusted coin. So, <clears throat> what happened was um, Bitcoin was doing really well, prices going up. A lot of people pulled out of the New York Agreement, stating that the code wasn't fully finished. It was um, had no replay protection. This could have caused um, transactions to happen on both chains without the user desiring that. Um, and so subsequently, a lot of people pulled out at the last minute and then Digital Currency Group called it off, um, you know, a few days beforehand. So interestingly, that kind of was still correlated with a, a bit of a dip in the price, uh, which, you know, I'm not sure why exactly that happened. Um, you know, it's easy to speculate. There's a lot of um, other kind of contention with the mining and then kind of shifting to Bitcoin Cash. And that's a whole nother, nother topic. 
But are you uh, are you referring what, what, to are you referring to the twenty five or twenty twenty to twenty five percent crash when you talk about a bit of a dip? Um, so yeah, I mean the, there was the original dip I think when the news came out, which being that the news was reversed, but you still saw a dip in the price when two X was meant to go live, um, but then subsequently that that did cascade on to to a twenty five percent drop. Um, there was a lot of what also put put into that was uh, a transition in mining. So so what happened was um, mining difficulty updates at set intervals. And so there was a few hour period where it was actually um, more cost effective for miners to switch to a different digital currency. Uh, this in turn started to build a bit of uncertainty and you had this kind of follow on effect and then the, the uh, difficulty adjusted again. And then all the mining switched back to Bitcoin. So it was a, um, it was a very kind of you know, tumultuous time, definitely. But um, no, it's definitely not the first 25% drop I've seen in my, um, in my Bitcoin lifetime. Um, so uh, since then, of course, the price has rallied significantly um, uh, to, as I say, to above yeah. 8000 8, now. What's been behind that? Yeah, well, I think what you're really starting to see at, at the moment is this uh, specialization of digital currency. So I think a year or two ago, it was much more believed that you would have one particular digital currency that would become the chain for all things and can do everything. Um, but what Bitcoin's currently proving is that it's actually becoming quite a trustable store of value because it's quite censorship resistant. It's very mutable. It's very hard to change. Um, so it's interesting because in this day and age, digital uh, Bitcoin is actually the most conservative digital currency. Uh, it, it's borderline impossible to try and actually change it. Um, so what what Babington is doing is giving it a more and more reputation as a as a secure store of value. Um, on top of that, you have the fact that within the protocol, there has never been a, a, a security uh, hack, so to speak, within the actual Bitcoin infrastructure, the the protocol. Um, and so this is starting to flow on to trust in the eyes, particularly of millennials. Um, who are more and more interested in buying, you know, putting 1% of their savings into it and seeing it as a, um, a, a long-term investment. So uh, what proportion of the transactions that you're doing in Bitcoin are investments or speculation and what proportion are, used, are people using Bitcoin to transfer money? Um, yes, yeah, so we did a, um, a survey in January this year of 1,300 Australians and we asked them about their, their Bitcoin habits, why are they buying it, et cetera. Uh, 63% said they were buying it for investments. And the next highest one was 26% for merchant purchases. Um, so I think this year particularly, it's starting to be a bit more of a kind of in vogue um, cool thing to say that, you know, oh, I bought Bitcoin ages ago and, you've, you know, um, you know the, the investment guru, so to speak. Um, and I think that, yeah, we're seeing that cascade more um, especially with the CME news, that they're making a, a Bitcoin index. So I think this year you're really starting to see the association of the word Bitcoin and digital currency with the words uh, in, in investment or um, institutional so that, investment. That, that 63% would probably be higher now, wouldn't it? I, I'd imagine so, absolutely. Um, I, again, it's, I have a few friends that, um, that own Bitcoin. I've tried to get them to, to sell them to me many times. They won't budge. Right. What, what, what do you think is going to happen to the price of Bitcoin? Um, well, I mean, obviously it's all 
impossible to say. I, I at the start of this year, um, gave a prediction of 2,000 US by the end of 2017. So um, I've always been kind of rather conservative in terms of my price estimates. Um, I mean, there are quite interesting correlations between the price and the network effect, uh, saying that the, the value of the network is the number of users squared, um, which does lead to some kind of exponential growth. Um, for me, I think that the kind of a short-term target of 9,000 US seems quite realistic. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I really don't like to think high in the sky. Uh, I'm more so based on kind of building out the infrastructure to allow people to really get on board. I've seen it said that really Bitcoin's use um, fundamentally is, is as a, a, a low friction means of transferring money, um, which obviously yes. is its practical yes. use, but um, that's not how people are using it, as you point out. But, but is, there, well, is there a long-term use for it as a low friction transfer, money transfer mechanism? Um, yeah, I, I definitely think so. So, I mean, you can still see of the market cap of Bitcoin, um, you know, you can have 5 to 10, even 20% of the, the total value traded daily. Um, so whether this is in between exchanges or people consolidating it into their own wallets, but the point being that it's, it's incredibly liquid. So we, um, you know, Bitcoin.com is the main exchange we run in Australia. And so we, we use uh, floats on multiple exchanges globally. Uh, one of the biggest pain points is that it takes us 10 to 14 days to wire money, uh, you know, Australian dollars across, across the continents, and it takes us about 10 seconds to get the Bitcoins back. So what you're actually seeing is, although in this space there is, you know, considerable arbitrage opportunities and, um, you know, has these kind of symbols of a emerging market, so to speak, it's not fully optimised. I think that the majority of that is actually coming from the fiat side, um, Again, you can get Bitcoins from one exchange to the other in as little as, as 10 minutes, but um, the fiat will take you at least a week. Even with the way Bitcoin's moving, the price of Bitcoin is moving, even 10 minutes can be can see the price of it change. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, um, it's not for the faint heart of the space, definitely. What about the other cryptocurrencies, things like Ripple and Lisk and... Um, and Ethereum, obviously, which is the second biggest. I mean, uh, what is going on in those? I mean, because there's, there's like uh, 900 or something other cryptocurrencies. Yeah, it's it's grown rapidly. At current, I think there's 1,300 that are, are traded um, for in exchange for another currency, giving it some kind of you know tangible value. Um, I mean, what you're really seeing is the emergence of the the ICO market and this kind of new in vogue term about um, basically trying to, to monetize an illiquid asset. So so what what is interesting is that in this space, there's really no barrier to entry. So I could make my own digital currency tomorrow if I wanted. Um, the, the challenge is, is how am I going to get other people to use it and install some type of value into the system? So what you're starting to see this year is the real emergence of, um, of alt currencies, whether it's an ICO or, um, or, you know, or not, it's the same principle this idea of how do we monetize an existing illiquid asset. So the two which I think are quite kind of interesting from a, a thought point of view is um, Filecoin, which is the idea that um, if you have excess disk space in your hard drive on your computers, you can then sell this on an open market to uh, data centers, and then they have a better uh, offering by decentralizing their data stores. Um, and again, the user gets money for... Um, for monetizing something which which they currently can't. Another. Um, 
But what's that got to what's that got to do with what has that got to do with cryptocurrencies? Well, the idea is you're you're using the cryptocurrency tech to monetize an existing asset that's currently illiquid. In in this current example, the the asset is excess disk space. So the point being is how do you kind of bootstrap a currency to give some type of value to its users so they'll actually um, endorse the product or, or make money out of something that they couldn't be previous couldn't previously. So I mean, another kind of you know less less you know future thinking idea is the idea of um, art coin, the idea where you issue a digital currency to an existing asset, whether it's a house or a, a painting, and then you can sell a fraction of that. Um, but this this whole other idea is the idea of well, how do we take something that you can't currently sell? Um, another one I quite like is basic attention token um, or BAT. And so what what this idea is is um, is viewing ads online um, as opposed to that revenue share going entirely to Google, which is their main source of income. Um, what this uses is a Brave browser, which is uh, facilitated by Mozilla, and it replaces the ads with ads that you get money for viewing, effectively monetizing your attention. And, um, and, and basically, they, these are these new ideas in terms of well, how do we create a currency? Um, what, what are the underlying properties that give a currency value? And these, these are the new types of ideas of, well, if we can make some type of value for the users, then we have a very interesting uh, proposition. Right. So, so people are starting to think about cryptocurrencies as a way of fractionalizing assets. Um, yeah, fractionalizing assets or, um, or liquidizing illiquid assets. That's, that's definitely what I think is the new kind of big idea in the crypto space. Um, the challenge being that because, because there's no barrier to entry, people are just popping up more and more and more until there's no one to really fund it anymore in terms of, um, I think that in, in terms of the alt currency space, because I can create my own alt currency, and if people um, decide to, to input into it, then I create all this, this value. But you can keep iterating this to infinity. There's no, there's no limit to how many currencies you could, you could create, so to speak. Um, and then that's, that's kind of leading to this massive you know, 1,300 cryptocurrency space. And I remember um, in 2015, I was invested in, in alt currencies, and I checked my account a year ago, and I think of, you know, the, the five that I bought, all of them had kind of gone to zero dollars. So I think it, you're still in this this kind of big hype cycle where it's that kind of that new uh, gold rush, so to speak. Um, but but in that way, you know, it's going to be the the one in ten, the one in twenty that actually turns into something, um, you know, truly worthwhile. When I first started writing about this subject, um, I think I just I described it as a scam. Um, uh, other people have called it a fraud. Now, whenever I write about it. People write to me and say, "Oh, it's a Ponzi scheme, scam, and so on." I've come to the conclusion that it's that it's genuine. It's a real thing. I'm sort of changing my view about it, um, but it does seem to be somewhat anarchic, Rupert. I mean, it, in the sense that it's that there's all this stuff going on that that is uncontrolled, and um, yeah. if not sort of out of control. I mean, it may it may seem to you being inside the world that. There's a fair bit of control being exercised, but I can assure you that outside looking in, it seems like it's yeah. way out of control. I mean, what yeah. do you say um, to that? I, yeah, um, I, I think there's there's two aspects. And so one is the kind of the, the financial hysteria in a way where the assets are going up so quickly that you have to, you know, insert yourself, um, 
from from some kind of downside because you know it, as quickly as it goes up, it, it can go down. Um, you know, high risk, high reward. The other thing I think, which is which you're more referring to, is that kind of anarchistic, uh, you know, tendencies and and the space. And and really, I think what is important to understand is that it isn't really designed as a um, a, a system of money, so to speak, as much as it is an internet protocol. And so because of this, it's this new, brave new world where people have to kind of understand it and learn how this can actually improve their way of life. I mean, it's the same argument that was used for the internet and, you know, how this could facilitate, um, you know, nefarious use cases. But subsequently, we've seen that the, the value of the internet wasn't really captured by nefarious people. It was, uh, it was a new tech and that had implications and we all transformed. Um, what, what I'm actually doing a lot is I, I have a, a board director seat at the Australian Digital Commerce Association. Um, we're kind of an industry community um, with, you know, 40 major organizations as members. And I work closely with the um, Austrack in terms of writing the regulation and, and trying to assist them in understanding the space. And really... What, what you see is that um, this this tech uh, changes the game. It, it changes the game for, for financial freedom. And then that definitely has implications as to how we enforce anti-money laundering laws, your customer laws. Um, but in that process, there's, there's actually a great opportunity for innovation and optimization of existing systems. Um, what what I think is the, the major kind of fright that people um, still need to kind of accept in a way is that this is the first time where technology doesn't require um, a government's permission to operate uh, in, in terms of, of financial technology. So it's the first time where you can transact with someone um, without that information um, necessarily being known by a bank or being known by um, by Australian Transaction Reporting Commission or something of this nature. Um, the problem is, is that that's a very confronting idea to a lot of people, but that doesn't mean that that, that you can't enforce law. It doesn't mean that you can't observe, identify, um, and detect. And what, what is really needs to happen is uh, kind of a shift in, in thought about, well, how does, does regulators offer value to its users? Um, I, I like to kind of analogize it to the, the Uber versus um, taxis and how if you have a system that is, um, offers value to the users, is, is a peer-to-peer basis, doesn't require the regulation and, and simply um, works, then it's really about society um, shifting its laws and stuff in order to adopt to the new uh, value proposition of, of society. And I think that digital currency definitely fits the bill from a very fundamental technology basis, but we're still at the very early days of understanding how this should look. And um, I definitely think that regulation will happen, should happen, and should foster this technology. But I think that... Um, to do it right requires a lot of innovation and transformation of uh, existing status quo. And that was Rupert Hackett, the CEO of bitcoin.com.au.